the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. It's a delight to have Philip K. Howard in the house. Philip Howard is a widely respected leader of government and legal reform in the United States. He's the chair of Common Good and a best-selling author who's advised both political parties on needed reforms. His latest book is Everyday Freedom. In this urgent, actionable, and highly readable manifesto, Philip Howard pinpoints the source of powerlessness that is fraying American culture and causing public failure and he offers a bold vision of simpler governing frameworks to re-empower Americans in our daily lives. Philip Howard, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Great to be with you again, James. Well, Philip, if we go back 200 years, 250 years almost, in American history, this nation's built on words. What prompted you to write this book following that urgent national tradition? <laughs> Well, um, sometimes uh, the, the cultures fall into ruts, and and you need something bold to shake people out of them, and they need a vision to to pull themselves out. And I thought that neither party was providing a vision that was really talking to the two thirds of America that's alienated from Washington and really increasingly from American culture. And so I, this is my effort to present a sort of a version of Thomas Paine's common sense. You know, this is we need to break from this and go to that. So what exactly is everyday freedom and how did you happen upon that title? Um every by everyday freedom I mean um a structure in which uh, people can be directed in a job or by government about what goals they have to pursue, but they shouldn't be told how to do it. And if you tell people exactly how to have a safe workplace with 4,000 rules or how to maintain order in the classroom, you know, and how to prove it in a hearing, all that kind of stuff, what you you get paralysis and paralysis and frustration in every area of our society. We could go through it: healthcare, schools, business. Washington itself is paralyzed by a, a system really built up only since the 1960s that's designed to replace human judgment and human responsibility with legal dictates and processes. And it's kind of a double whammy. One, it doesn't work. <laughs> we have lousy schools. We have health care that costs twice as much as it should. We've got Washington that can't even give a permit for a transmission line. So it doesn't work. But secondly, it, uh, it, it demeans people. It takes away the dignity and the excitement of being free and waking up in the morning and thinking you can – make a difference because you spend the whole day being asked things like, is your paperwork in order? Have you done your DEI training? 
don't tell a bad joke, you might get fired. <laughs> it's just, you know, we're, we're, it's sort of it's like it's a legal minefield instead of a field of freedom. And a lot of people seem, even openly now, to think these are signs of national decline. They are signs of national decline. I mean, they're, the, you know, the instincts of, 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 of the people who, well, not only the, the, all the people who support Trump, but also extremists on both sides is the instinct of all these people is that the current system is broken and needs to be replaced. Well, let's do an alternative vision for a moment that I think a lot of us who know you and admire your work would like to see. But for the moment, it's a thought experiment. Let's wave a wand. And you're on the debate stage in October facing the two legacy party presidential candidates. What would you say to the American people and how would you challenge the Republicans and Democrats? Well, to the Republicans, I'd say it's not enough to object to the idiocies of government. You have to create a vision for a new kind of government. It has to be one that serves all people, not just the people in our party. And that requires more than anything else leadership that is trusted, that people trust to try to do the right thing and to be accountable for how it does. And Donald Trump is many things, but the one thing nobody would ever accuse him of is being trustworthy. <laughs> and he's and he has no um, um, he has no vision of how to replace what he wants to tear down. And he couldn't lead it if he had it to the Democrats. I would say you have a vision for more government without ever addressing why it is that government fails so often and costs twice as much as it should. You can't simply want more of it. You have to create a system framework in which society and government can make trade-offs and take risks and acknowledge the uncertainty in human nature and human behavior. And more is not a uh, effective governing strategy. We've got to allocate resources by priorities. So, Philip Howard, in Everyday Freedom, you lead us through a number of issues, and I want to identify six themes that you address really skillfully. And I'll add for people listening, it's written in a very, very accessible way. So it goes through a lot, but very skillfully. Don't be put off. It's not a textbook, but it is a bit of a how-to for how to fix things. Here are six issues you identify that throughout. One is the one you mentioned, a low-trust society. Second is very dense regulation at all levels of government from bureaucratic agencies and often very detailed statutes passed by legislatures. And there's interest group domination of government agencies or actions and sometimes even of our whole discussion. There's a lack of accountability at every level. I mean, even presidents often talk more like talk show hosts than executives of the most important organization on earth. There's institutional degradation. So, for example, the Congress, where I served on the staff four decades ago, including for some people that you've worked with, it's so degraded now that rarely do members actually have ideas for legislation. They're just taking it from the outside, and it gets laundered through staff and lobbyists and so on. And finally, we have a lack of self-belief, including perhaps most alarmingly our so-called elites, the 
very privileged people. How do you take this and pull it together and make progress? Yeah, I think there's a, um, um, to me, uh, there's kind of a core truth um, that I keep coming back to, which is that nothing works unless uh, a person makes it work. So, so we need to remake systems, not to prune the bureaucratic jungle a little more, because that's, it's, that's hopeless. It'll just grow back. You know, not to cut the processes a little, not to do this or that. We need to create a system where, where the touch point is always, is there somebody who has the freedom to make sense of the situation in front of them. You know, that everyone should have that authority. Uh, there was a management theorist named uh, Chester Barnard who once said um, that 90% of all activity, uh, uh, 90% of all decisions to get something done occur on the spot. You know, you're digging a hole. You've got to be careful not to, you know, what do you do when you run into a boulder? What if, what if there's a gas line there? What if there, there's, you know, tree limbs hanging you know, overhead? Hmm. Whatever. You know, there are all these things. You know, life accomplishment is much more complicated than you can ever, you know, sort of figure out sitting in an office writing rules. So so people have to have the freedom to adapt. And And if you have that system... At every level. So if, if, if a person waking up in the morning knows that they can go into their job and, and do what they think is right, and if the manager goes into a firm and knows that part of his job is to not only set standards of excellence, but to enforce them so that, so that everybody knows they're in the same boat, that's absolutely vital for the people underneath him. They need to know that everybody's pulling pulling their weight, right? Otherwise, yeah. otherwise it becomes the, the culture of the office, and this has happened broadly in government. It's like letting the air out of the balloon. As you might as well be kind of crawling towards your goals. Um, so at every level, people have to have the freedom to to do their jobs, and if you do that, you give people dignity. And you excite people. And if you give back to communities the the authority to provide services in their own way instead of, you know, having Big Brother in Washington a thousand miles away tell them how to do it. Um, it, it, it you know, everything is better. You, you increase, I mean, love itself. Hmm. You know, people, um, people need in a community to know that everyone's different and when we're dealing with social problems like homelessness, for example, that you need the flexibility to know the person and know their needs and talk with them and you need the resources to provide housing without having to do what L.A. did, which is pay $700,000 per homeless housing unit. It's just, it's just ridiculous, you know. Um, because of all these code requirements that weren't designed for homeless people, they just need a roof. They don't need a <laughs> they don't need a middle class apartment. Um, 
you know, I, you can't take any area of society and make it work unless the people on the ground at every level have the authority to use their judgment. You know, I don't know if you saw this. I expect you did because with your eagle eye, nothing gets by you anywhere as far as I can tell. But when President Xi came from China, all of a sudden, for the first time in a generation, San Francisco's downtown was cleaned up. The homelessness <laughs> were gone for about a week. For about a week. That's now, right. What does I mean, that tell is, you? Well, how do you yeah. interpret that? What's the good and the bad and the lesson out of that? Yeah, it's just pathetic. First of all, um, the one thing that bureaucrats respond to is embarrassment. So, so they cleaned up San Francisco for one week to avoid embarrassment. But it was only for a week, right? So if you want to fix homelessness, you need first a theory of authority. Who decides who can be involuntarily removed and sometimes even committed? Uh, you need uh, housing really designed for them. It's less expensive, more like single room occupancy type housing. But but with assisted living parts for people who are addicted or have or have, you know uh, mental issues, and and that requires resources um, uh, to do that, and it requires a, um, a, a sense of authority and obligation on the ground by locals, the churches and others, and professionals to to really understand who these people are and to somehow have them be part of the community. I mean, there have been people who are troubled and can't take care of themselves in the, throughout the history of mankind. And, and communities in good societies have, have taken it upon themselves to one way or another to help these people. And we've, we've disempowered uh, government from doing it effectively, and we've disempowered community groups from doing it effectively. So you need to re-empower both of them. One of the positive examples you relate in everyday freedom is Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, who used emergency powers to override regulations and successfully dealt with the freeway crisis. We've had similar actions in California, particularly in Los Angeles, under Governors Newsom and Wilson and Los Angeles mayors Bass and Reardon. How do we build on these examples? You generalize. You say instead of having a, a legal system that's grounded in distrust and requires all these formal procurement procedures that have the effect of doubling the cost of many projects, you do what Governor Spiro did. So the, the, there was a gas tank that a gas truck that caught on fire underneath 95 near Philadelphia. It caused the section of the highway to collapse. Oh, gosh, that's terrible. It's going to cost, it's going to take, you know, I don't know, six months to fix it using the standard government procedures. Um, Twelve days later, it reopened. How did they do that? They simply waived all the rules. The, the commissioner used his judgment to, to, to decide, well, we can't put, you know, too much landfill there because it will crush the pipes underneath the road. So we'll use crushed glass, which is much lighter. Fine. 
day and night. They made a contract, just a, you know, a single source contract with a with a glass recycler, things like that. And he, he waived every single permitting requirement, <laughs> procurement requirement, and it was done in 12 days. And, you know, every study on corruption says this. The way you discourage to stop corruption is not with lots of procedures, you know, competitive bidding. All this. The way you stop it is by giving one official the authority to make the decision. <laughs> then what you have is somebody whose bank account you can check. And instead, we, you know, we have a system of government. It really is the rule of nobody. You know, it's just. Yeah, everybody, you know, there's so many procedures that that all the scandals, there was one big one in New York where no one had authority to give this crooked company the contract. But but the crooked bureaucrats figured out how they could sort of game the criteria, you know, and game the hearings in such a way that 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 they would get the contract. And it was the obscurity it was the fact that there were no clear lines of authority that enabled the fraud to happen. Well, let's talk about two groups that tend to turn up over and over in this narrative of dysfunction and the possibility of reform. The first is lawyers. A lot of people will say, you know, lawyers got us into this. How can it be that lawyers help us get out of it? Is there anything the profession itself can do in general, or do we have to rely upon really smart lawyers like yourself who can understand a system that's opaque to most people? Or how do we get the legal profession on side? Yeah, I mean, in general, I would say that's hard because the, everybody who is in the in the system right now interpreting all these rules and stuff is supporting themselves doing it. You know, all of Washington is dedicated to the status quo. You know, thousands of lawyers and lobbyists and all that. Better so, get President Xi to visit. I don't know. Something yeah, like yeah, exactly. So, so this this will never be led uh, from the inside. It's like all kind of big revolutions will be led from the outside. But, um, uh, but you know, the first step in solving a problem, particularly this problem, is not unlike addiction, is to acknowledge the problem. <laughs> you know, we have a problem. Our system doesn't let people take responsibility. <laughs> That's a serious problem. That requires not a new leader because the new leader is stuck in the system. That requires a leader who's dedicated to changing the system, not to do what that leader wants, but to re-empower everyone. And, you know, there will be lawyers who will be helpful. I have a lot of lawyer friends who are or, or even not friends who are supportive of this. But I don't think the legal community will 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 help lead it. They just, you know, they've America has dramatically many more lawyers than any other culture, and that's in part because of this. Well, let's talk about another group that you've identified and really made clear their influence, and that's public employee unions. David Crane, a governor for California recently took a look at the current budget situation. And this is not particularly to knock on the politicians because they're all alike on this, frankly. Let me just give you a couple of quick stats that won't surprise you, but maybe you can react to them. 
This year, according to Crane, the state is directly spending $42 billion on compensation and benefits for 253,000 executive branch employees and indirectly spending more through public schools and other subsidiaries. And to take the big picture, for example, we're spending uh, as much on prison and employee salaries and benefits as the UC system combined and twice what Texas spends on prison spending. I mean, how do we get a handle on this in practicality? Because you're leading an important litigation effort. Uh, but, you know, it's like a war. You can't just have one commander and one front, perhaps. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the union, so the union problem, uh, I think, is is actually not primarily, well, there are two problems. I, there's a significant financial uh, uh, cost to the taxpayers in in a system like the prison system in California that's been built up with laws that are written by the Correctional Officers Union so that there'll be more prisoners. <laughs> so it's really, it's kind of absurd. And there are all these collective bargaining agreements that do things like tolerate a assistant fire chief making $500,000 a year by gaming the overtime rules. And, you know, so there are all kinds of abuses of it. But the worst of it is is that these collective bargaining agreements literally and legally make it impossible to manage schools and government agencies. You want to fix a broken school? Forget it. You can't do it. Everything has to be negotiated with the union. There's a pandemic. Uh, you want to do some distance teaching? Nothing in the contract about distance teaching. You know, you know, so there's so that has to be negotiated and ends up being, you know, some two hours a day or something. You know, it's, it's just it, um, so voters elect mayors and governors supposedly to run government and they come to office and they're subject to these collective bargaining agreements that literally do not allow them to run government. So I argue in the book that I published a year ago, not accountable that the union should be unconstitutional. There's a second problem, which is which is the problem of fixing it, which is that the reason the unions have all this power is because they have a corrupt relationship with uh, elected officials. The unions pay for them to get elected. The mayor of Chicago, 90% of his funds came from the public unions, 90%. So he sits down at the bargaining table. You think he's bargaining against the union? No, it's not a bargain. It's a payoff. So um, so I'm organizing constitutional challenges and trying to raise money, for, you know, to pay for constitutional scholars. And such. so we're, so, you know, so we're doing that. But but democracy cannot function if the people, the voters elect don't have the authority to to manage the government. Well, a lot of the problems seems at a basic level that the people that understand the problems in the system uh, generally don't want to fix it. And the people who want to fix it often don't understand the problems. 
So we get people elected sometimes on reform tickets, but they really don't have the capacity to do what they might even intend to do. And I think we even see that perhaps at the presidential level where people get desperate and just sort of throw a grenade in. Yeah. But what else can they yeah, do? Yeah, 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 completely. And so, so it's one of my problems that, um, I've written a lot about civil service reform and, uh, Trump tried to hire me, uh, because I talked about how presidents have executive power to override some of the controls that Congress put on them. Um, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to work for Trump, but, but Trump suggested uh, something called Schedule F, which is to make a lot of high-level bureaucrats be subject to uh, being dismissed by the president, um, which I understand the, the logic of that. But it doesn't work because it isn't just the president's authority that's lacking. It's the authority of these bureaucrats that's lacking. They don't have the authority to manage the people beneath them. So you really want to make government work, you have to give authority back to police chiefs and the deputy department heads and stuff to get rid of the lousy people underneath them, not just simply fire fire the top bureaucrats. So it, it's um, your statement about lack of understanding is so, so true. I mean, one of my goals with everyday freedom is to create a, narr- a new narrative. It's not in the current system, in the, in the current political arena in Idaho. And the, the new narrative might be called system failure. Mm. You, you know, we're not, we're not talking about or just talking about lousy leaders. We're talking about a system that is designed to fail. Because no one, because the teacher can't maintain order in the classroom, the principal can't decide who's a good teacher, you know, on up to the White House. So, so that's a, so it's going to take a movement that's going to be led by you and me. Philip, you are taking on <laughs> an established order. Some might even call it from a distance, like a late empire situation in the United States, although we don't see ourselves this way. How do you think, as a practical matter, with these terrific ideas and the vision you have and the, and the reforms you're putting together, how can these be uh, accepted or imposed absent a universally understood crisis? Or do we have to simply await that budget crisis or that war? One hates to think this way, but if you look at our history, um, one has to ask, what are the exemplars you might have? I mean, a lot of these systems, like the civil service, it was set up as a reform itself and did a lot of good. But then over time, it becomes corrupted. Uh, some of that was done outside of a crisis, which is an extraordinary thing. But a lot of it has only been done in crisis. How do yeah. you see this? Yeah. So, I mean, just so the civil service was, was created to replace the spoil system with a merit system. And now civil service has become a spoil system where merit merit is irrelevant (laughs) so you know it got captured by the you know by the you know by on the inside so um i'm talking to presidential candidates and i'm i'm talking to you know people who are trying to and but i am influenced so my goal 
which we're going to do by hosting forums with leading with leading scholars as well as political leaders, including I think we're going to do a forum with Governor Shapiro at, uh, in Pennsylvania at the University of Pittsburgh in a month. Um, my goal is to go all around the country and talk to people about the need to re-empower human responsibility. And and by doing that, I don't think that we will create a new system all of a sudden. We used to have political parties that have their own interest groups and such. But at least there'll be an alternative vision because we are going to have a crisis. Who knows what it is? But you can practically feel the ground shaking, right? You know, and Americans are fed up. Um but right now, there's no vision anywhere that I can find of, of how to how to replace the system. What should it look like? So what I'm trying to do, and I've got a bunch of people who are prominent names in the political arena, like Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, and others who are who are being helpful, um, is introduce a vision. And people can disagree with the vision. They can have their own vision. Uh, but this is a vision of a simpler system based on re-empowering human responsibility. And when and if the stars align, they'll probably align in a bad and terrifying way, unfortunately. At least that vision will be available for uh, people to consider and perhaps adopt. And when a crisis hits, everybody is looking for something off the shelf. Literally, there's not time to reinvent things. And your tremendous body of work, including everyday freedom, will surely be a part of that. Can I ask you a general question as we close? You mentioned your work with various candidates in the both of the legacy parties and so on. And not asking you to um, endorse or uh, anything of this nature, any candidates, of course. But how do you factor in now the rising independent and third party efforts like Robert yeah. F. Kennedy or or uh, no labels and, and so on? Yeah, I think um, I'm not as critical of them as the others. I, I spent a little time with Joe Manchin last weekend, um, the senator from West Virginia, who's who's um, flirting with a third party bid, maybe with no labels. Uh, uh, I think it's important to it's important for people to fear a third party because the reality is that the two existing parties are representing I don't know twenty five percent of the Americans. You know, most people Paul show don't want either one of these candidates. You know, they're fed up with both parties. So, so fine. Let's talk about something new. And uh, so I, I think it's constructive. Now, having said that, uh, if, uh, you know, I have a point of view about uh, both parties. I think neither Trump nor Biden is a good candidate. Um uh, but I, but I fear one one of them more than the other. So, um, 
so, so, so I think there is a pragmatic decision that has to be made when you get closer to the November date of the election. But, but I think the idea of starting a, a new party or taking over a party is actually not only constructive, I think it actually has to happen. The current parties are hidebound. I mean, they, they, they won't do what's right. Well, Philip K. Howard, thank goodness for you. And we will have in the show notes links to Common Good and, of course, to this wonderful new book, Everyday Freedom, Designing the Framework for a Flourishing Society. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with as we end? No, it's great to be with you. And, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, we're looking for new ideas. If any of your listeners have other ideas, you know, we're looking to engage people on the subject of of a new vision for how to make our society work again and how to re-empower people so they're they're invigorated and you know in a way that's positive rather than right now which is as far as I can tell all negative and 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 all powerlessness all the time so yeah. it, it, it's great to it's great to be with you and great to uh, talk to your audience well, Philip Howard, thank you again. The book is Everyday Freedom, Designing the Framework for a Flourishing Society. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us and for making this podcast possible. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strock. Connect via our website, Serve to Lead, and subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.